the history of women in U.S. spaceflight. You're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Sally Ride became the first U.S. astronaut to fly in space in 1983, but the story of women astronauts began decades earlier. For Women's History Month, we're exploring the history of women in the U.S. astronaut corps, starting with a look at the 13 women who trained alongside NASA's original Mercury 7 in the 1960s. And while they never went to space, they paved the way for future female astronauts. Then, as NASA focused on science in the late 1970s, it made room for women to join the astronaut corps. We'll hear about how women were integrated into the corps during the space shuttle era. A look back at the history of women in space. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. The first U.S. astronauts to launch to space were men. The Mercury 7 were handpicked for their test pilot skills for a new program aimed at putting humans in space and paving the way for future programs like Apollo to go to the moon. But one requirement of the program, you had to be a man. Well, that didn't stop some researchers from studying just how well-suited women would be for a space mission. Thirteen women were selected for a private medical study looking at the prospects of female astronauts. Author Rebecca Siegel chronicles their stories and the impacts these women had on gender equality in space exploration in her young adult book, To Fly Among the Stars. We spoke with her about the book back in 2020. It is it is a fantastic story. Um, can you kind of like tell us a bit about these women? Who were they? Where When women weren't in aviation through the military, they, they still somehow found themselves in planes and then found themselves in this program. How did they get there? So the 13 women in this book were all pilots. Um, most of them were career pilots. Some of them were hobbyists, but they came from a variety of backgrounds. Most were middle class, you know, who worked hard to afford their flight lessons. Some were quite poor. And one, um, Janie Hart, she's the wife of Phil Hart, the senator from Michigan. She was really wealthy. Um, but they all had this thing in common, which was that they were all in love with flying airplanes. Um, and that's saying something because in the 50s and 60s, Getting into an airplane at all for anybody, man or woman, was tricky. But getting into an airplane for a woman meant overcoming all kinds of obstacles. Um, not only did they have to be able to afford their flight lessons and find a flight instructor who would teach them, but they also had to get past this notion that flying was a man's job or something that was only appropriate for men. And what's interesting is looking at this group of different women who were different ages. You know, the youngest was 22 and the oldest was 39. You know, and they lived all over the United States doing all different kinds of jobs, but they had this common thread between them, which was that they were all quite ambitious, uh, very driven, brave, patriotic. And in those first years of the space race, they were all really captivated by that idea that maybe if they were good enough pilots, they might be able to become astronauts as well. And that's something that, you know, they had in common with the Mercury 7, who I'm sure your listeners will know, these guys. John Glenn, Alan Shepard, Scott Carpenter, you know, these aviators who tested to become astronauts and went through this really grueling, invasive process in order to become our first space pilots. Um, they also had those same personality traits where they were just driven, independent, very smart, and very hopeful about their future in astronautics. The 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 book kind of parallels them as as it um as it moves forward and you, and you get to see what the Mercury 7 were doing, 
um, in comparison to what the women were doing. And, and a lot of the testing was was similar. And, and I found that aspect of the book to be the most fascinating is is these tests that they performed on these these 13 women. And then the fact that that evidence is just gone now. Right? <laughs> I mean, what yeah. what happened with first of all, talk about these tests and then, you know, this quest of you trying to track down these tests and, and it's not there anymore. What happened to it? Just to back up a little bit. So at the very beginning of this process, you know, it's the first years at NASA and NASA's Astronaut Selection Committee needs to find the best people to fly in space, which we didn't know very much about what spaceflight would do to human body at the time. So really what that meant was let's get somebody really smart, physically fit, um, have good mental health, and have proven themselves in these situ- in situations that are similar to what we think spaceflight will be like. And ultimately that meant finding pilots who were um, healthy, young had um, and were able to handle stress well. And so in order to find those people, NASA was putting these guys through these really intense tests. They were a series of medical, psychological, and stress adaptability tests. And they tested everything about them. You know, they tested their hearts, their lungs, um, the contents of their stomachs. They tested their vision, their hearing, their adaptability to vertigo. So one of the tests that they did was um, inject supercooled liquid into their inner ear to um, freeze the bones inside their ear, which induces vertigo. And then what the doctors would do is then they would stand back and time these pilots to see how fast they could recover. Um, it sounded horrible. Everybody said it was incredibly <laughs> Sounds right, terrible. And then, and then they had to do the whole test on the other ear, which sounds even worse because you wouldn't know what was coming. But what's interesting is that about a year after the Mercury 7 underwent these tests, this group of women began undergoing their own privately funded version of those same tests and they were performing well. However, we don't know exactly how well they performed because we don't know where their test results went. For the most part, there's some um, data from one of their tests. It was this bicycle test that they had to ride a bike against an increased um, incline to see how they could perform. And on that test, we know that the women performed about on par with the men. Um, However, the rest of the tests are gone. The test results are gone. And I think even the fact that they're lost reflects the cultural attitude of the time. You know, the fact that we don't know where those tests went shows that people were not taking this women astronaut testing program seriously. If they were, those tests would be enshrined with the rest of the data that we have from that period. You know, if you spend any time in space history communities, people are always showing the pictures that they have of their dad and John Glenn and or like a ticket stub that John Glenn signed. These things have become these treasures of American history. And the fact that a big stack of papers from the Loveless um, Medical Clinic in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which was the place where these men and women underwent their medical testing, the fact that that data is gone just shows how dismissive people were of this entire project. The the argument that was made by advocates to put women into the astronaut corps was that, you know, they were physically fitter, uh, but more importantly, they were they were smaller, they ate less, they breathed less, um, which is important when you're packing a, a capsule for survival, um, which they argued made them good candidates for these first flights. W- where was the pushback on having women in the astronaut corps? At NASA, what, what was what was their reasoning why they, they couldn't be a part of this program? Sure. Well, the short answer is that women were not selected for those Mercury flights because women were never seriously considered for those Mercury flights. Um, 
the testing program that these women underwent was not done through NASA. It was a privately funded research program conducted by this guy named Dr. Loveless. He was a chairman of NASA's Committee on Life Sciences at the time, but his research project was separate from NASA. But beyond that, these women weren't chosen to become astronauts because people at NASA weren't thinking about women at NASA as mm-hmm. astronauts yet. And, and in their quest to remedy that, some of these women even went to Congress, right? I mean, how, how did how did that go? So in the summer of 1962, um, two of the women, Jerry Cobb and Janie Hart, took their fight to Washington, D.C. Um, in a special hearing in the House of Representatives, where they basically argued that NASA's astronaut requirements, which remember were that in those first years that they wanted astronauts to be military test pilots with jet flight experience. These were two things that women simply could not achieve. And so Cobb and Hart went to Congress arguing that NASA was discriminating against women by having those astronaut requirements. Like they were saying, this is gender discriminatory because 50% of the population cannot meet the qualifications that this agency has set out. And, you know, um, at face value, I think that this hearing looked like it was going to be good for the women because they were getting attention. People were listening to their concerns. They were taking it seriously enough to have a hearing in the House of Representatives. But it was a total flop. Jerry Cobb testified talking about why women should be considered as viable astronaut candidates. And Janie Hart gave this amazing testimony where she argued basically that while it's fine for women who want to be homemakers and who want to stay home with their children, she said it's also fine that for some women, the PTA is not enough. She was basically saying, we are entering into this new phase in American culture where women are leaving the house and these career doors need to be open for them. Um, So after these two women, both of them were astronaut test subjects, gave their testimonies, then this woman named Jackie Cochran walks in and she is going to give her testimony. And so a little background on Cochran, she had actually funded the women's astronaut testing program. Um, She was a really wealthy woman. She uh, was a famous aviator. She owned a cosmetics empire. She was this dynamo, you know, Americans knew about her. But somewhere along the line, she had decided that she changed her mind. She no longer supported this women's astronaut testing program. And there's some suggestion that the reason she was no longer supporting it was because she had been excluded from it. So she was in her 50s, which was too old to become an astronaut by these guidelines. And she had tried to actually undergo some of the astronaut tests that the other women were taking, and she was denied permission to do so. And so there's some evidence that maybe she was mad that she wasn't Mm -hmm. included in this process, but she argued in the House of Representatives, that she didn't support this program. She thought it was too small, too limited. The results were not going to accurately reflect a whole gender. And so what she did is she presented NASA with this sort of attractive argument, which was basically saying, we're not going to accept women astronauts right now, but we will later in the future after we've done a lot more work. And that sort of bought the agency some wiggle room to say, oh, we're, we're not against women. We're just not going to take any at the moment. And that let NASA proceed with Gemini and Apollo, you know, ultimately working towards that goal of getting a human on the moon. Now, at the end of this trial, um, John Glenn and Scott Carpenter both testified and they both argued that 
no, NASA wasn't discriminating against women, that in fact, to be an astronaut, you did need to be a test pilot and you did need to have jet flight experience. And um, this is where John Glenn said this really famous line, which was um, men go off and fly the airplanes and fight the wars. Um, and basically he said the fact that women are not in this field is a fact of our social order. And when Glenn said that, he wasn't justifying the discrimination against women, but he was sort of explaining it. Like, okay, the fact that women can't be astronauts isn't something we should be arguing with. It's just how the world is. And I think for these women, that was what they were up against. You know, this notion that the world has some spheres that are appropriate for men and some that are appropriate for women. And these these women just weren't ready to accept that. How did their work kind of change the, as you write in the book, the the trajectory of the American space program? What what effects did their fight have getting to the the gender politics out of space flight, if it had any effect at all? You know, it, I would like to say that all their hard work paid off and they all went into space. <laughs> um, but you know, uh, none of the women in the Mercury 13 made it to space. And in fact, we didn't get women astronaut candidates until 1978. And then beyond that, a woman pilot, a woman didn't pilot a spacecraft until Eileen Collins did it in 1995. So it was a long, long road to get women aviators into the positions they wanted in American space flight. But that's not to say that these women didn't have an impact on the way the American crewed space flight developed. Um, but there was a lag of big lag. So this all wrapped up right around 1963. And it was 15 years before we saw women being welcomed into the astronaut corps. And even then they weren't pilots. They were mission specialists. They were scientists, you know, researchers. And that's, that was great. That was a huge leap forward. But that wasn't what these women, these original pilots had wanted. These women wanted to see a woman fly a spacecraft. And, you know, in 1995, when Eileen Collins did, she piloted the space shuttle. Um, several of these women were there for the launch and they were able to finally see their work pay off. That was author Rebecca Siegel. The book is To Fly Among the Stars, the hidden story of the fight for women astronauts. Our conversation first aired in April 2020 and there's more to it. Visit our website at wmfe.org slash are we there yet for our full interview. Still to come, with the shuttle program comes new opportunities for women, a conversation on the efforts to integrate them into the astronaut corps. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. After the final Apollo mission, the space race was over. In the 1970s, NASA began looking ahead to the space shuttle program, a program with a greater focus on science. We spoke with University of Central Florida history professor Amy Foster, who said that focus on science gave women a window to join NASA's astronaut corps. But by the 1970s, the Apollo program was over, the shuttle program was beginning, and the the mission for NASA very much changed. The, the space race was over. Um, and so NASA was kind of redefining what they would be. Um, and it really would be about science. And and in, in fact, that's actually consistent with what President Eisenhower had wanted for the space program. If you look at the um, 
the National Air and Space Act that that bounds NASA, um, it's meant to be a scientific agency. And so that NASA was kind of going back to, I would say, its roots in defining what the shuttle program would be. And so because it was going to be about science, NASA needed scientists and engineers mm-hmm. and physicians. So this was kind of the first opportunity to bring in a much larger group. It was the largest group to date um, with 35 people and 15 of those were pilots because they needed somebody still to fly the shuttle um and then the rest were scientists engineers physicians um and so this is really kind of what opened the doors um for women to enter the program you no longer had to be a pilot you know women were still kind of struggling to get into flying career because it isn't until the 1970s that you have women who uh, become pilots in the military and particularly go to test pilot school. And that was still something that NASA was was prioritizing for its pilots. But women were getting degrees in the sciences and going to medical school. Um, and so that, you know, we had women now, a, a larger uh, percentage of women who qualified for the space program because they now had advanced degrees in science. So it's it's as much about women having opportunities in what I call those pipeline careers that ultimately will feed the space shuttle astronaut corps. When we look at those first six women who were selected as part of group eight, they are all scientists or physicians. So we've got an astrophysicist, a biochemist, an electrical engineer, an ER physician, a surgeon, and a marine geologist. So, you know, it's very much science-based up. And these women all had either an MD or a PhD. So very accomplished coming into the field. So it's as much about the technology changing that opens up opportunities, but also that redefinition of what NASA was was doing with its missions moving forward. So so the, the scientific direction of the space shuttle program gets the women in the door at this point. But when they're there, what are some of the early hurdles that they faced walking into this boys club? You know, the fact that there were 35 new people and there, it was also the first time that people of color were included in, in the astronaut selection course. So there were three African-American men and there was an Asian-American man. And so the look of that class was very different. And I think as a whole, classes tend to 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 gel, um, and so you can say the white guys in the group were supportive of, you know, the people who were in that group that were going to be uh, trendsetters. And class worked very well together. But I think one of the biggest challenges that uh, those six women faced was that they're entering, like you said, a boys' club. NASA, if you look at pictures of of you know mission control in the 1960s it's very white very male very protestant in fact um and and so these are are men who were comfortable working with other men um used to and not really sure what to do with women how to behave the women that had been around them were the majority of them were secretaries um and so now they have a core of women who are essentially at the same level, uh, certainly as are as well educated as the, the engineers that we see at NASA. So there, there were some bumps in the road. I think the the men were pretty uncomfortable with the whole idea of what what do we do with these women? And we, if, if 
just kind of just made them very uncomfortable and they didn't really know. And and certainly when we're dealing with spaceflight and there's lots of elements that are involved in spaceflight to include just living conditions, uh, that made a lot of the, the male engineers very nervous when they had to ask questions of women about things like mucus, <laughs> you know, that it, the men had to deal with, when, particularly with designing that toilet. And there was, yeah, there was a lot of uncomfortable conversations, I think, for the male engineers to have to breach these topics with the women. Um, I, I would say as a whole, you know, when I when I talked to those first women, they don't they don't say they were discriminated against. Um, they can tell those funny stories about being around male engineers who really just were so uncomfortable in their skin having to ask some of these questions. Um, but I think you know, they they certainly experienced some of that, you know, laughing behind their backs uh, oh. and judgments based on the fact that they were women. Um, but these are all women who have come through, like I say, they've, they've come through PhD programs in the sciences. Um, so they already come in with a pretty thick skin. Uh, right. And, and aren't as sensitive to kind of those jokes behind their back, but they do happen. As you mentioned, you have talked to a lot of these women, um, you know, in in your research and uh, also writing your book. What did they make of the situation? Like in the moment, did they see themselves as these trailblazers for the the women that would come, um, you know, next in line? Or did they just want to do their jobs? What what did they perceive their role in this new chapter? It's it's very much both. Um, you know, they were there to do a job. Um, it was a job they wanted to do. They were excited to do. Um, and so they were willing to put up with a lot of, you know, that that backroom teasing and, and those situations where you just want to roll your eyes uh, because they wanted to fly and they were professionals and that was their driving motivation. Um, but they certainly understood that they were doing something that no other women before then had done in the United States. Um, at this point, there had been one Soviet woman who flew in, in 1963, uh, but that was the only woman they had flown until 1983. Um, so it's and so it's there's not a lot of history there anyway of women flying in space. And so they understood that everything that they did um, was going to set a precedent um, that was important to truly understand. And they understood themselves as heroes. Um, for girls, um, you know, and young women who were, were coming up through comparable ranks, you know, as an example for really understanding the importance that their presence and their, their job meant. Um, when, when Sally Ride was selected for her first flight, which was the first flight of an American woman in space, um, she would actually sit down with the other five women and talk through some of the procedures that she was writing, uh, particularly for the remote manipulator arm. Uh, so she was going to be the one kind of working that arm from inside the flight deck. Um, and so, you know, as she's kind of writing these policies, she would sit down with the other women and say, does this make sense to you? Does this sound like a good approach? Does this sound like a good procedure? So that the other woman could, could you know, help construct those set of protocols because Sally understood, as well as the other five women, understood that if the next person to come along, who happened to be Judy Resnick, if she came in and changed the protocols that Sally had written for the remote manipulator arm, there would be pushback. 
you know, mm-hmm. they they understood that the response would be these women, they just can't, you know, they can't make a decision. They're flighty. You know, they're unpredictable. Um, and so they understood that everything that they did was going to be judged and evaluated in a way that the men weren't. And and that's it's a, it's really quite a burden in a lot of ways um, to have to second guess or or, you know, backstep and, and evaluate every single thing they do because they know they're going to be judged for it. NASA, as we talked about, had from at least the top level, had a strong motivation to integrate these women into the astronaut corps. But as you write, they still faced political, technological and social challenges. I mean, why was this such a difficult thing to do on the ground? Even though the 1970s, we see the rise of the second women's movement, you know, that there's the reason we have the second women's movement is because there's still such animosity towards women in the workplace, in the public sphere, um, you know, for a very long time. And particularly after World War II, as we are returning to, you know, a, a sense of normalcy um, with the whole idea of the nuclear family. The father goes out. He's the breadwinner for the family. The mother stays home, you know, raises the kids, keeps the home. Uh, you know, that's that became the social uh, ideal in the United States. And so, you know, when women start the second women's movement for more women's rights, it is because, um, you know, those opportunities hadn't been created. They they weren't coming readily. Um, and, you know, when I when I teach about the women's movement, I really kind of say, you know, this comes directly out of the civil rights movement because there were women active in the civil rights movement and just the way they were treated as part of those organizations, uh, it, it kind of they came to their own sense of realization. Why are we fighting for black voting rights when we're being discriminated against in the whole process? Um, and so it, while they still believed in civil rights, they also understood that as a woman, they also have rights to fight for. Um, and so it's, you know, it it's coming out of that era that you have women now doing something that was considered for a very long time, not just a man's job, but but an American hero's job. Um, so, you know, we look at those, the Mercury astronauts, Americans don't much think about the Gemini program that was right in the middle between Mercury and, and Apollo. But it kind of that the Mercury to Apollo astronauts, they were, um, you know, as Tom Wolf described it in the right stuff, single combat warriors. They were they were the cold warriors fighting against the Soviet Union and they were about American prestige. And so for a woman to come in and do that, there there were a lot of people, both men and women, who who were arguing it's not the place. For women. Mm-hmm. So again, it's kind of that public sphere, private sphere kind of conversation again. Um, you know, like I say, by the 1970s, women are getting more opportunities in higher ed um, and and getting advanced degrees. And so those doors are opening, but they they do come with some real pushback. That was University of Central Florida history professor Amy Foster. That conversation first aired in March 2021. The rest of that conversation is on our website. Visit wmfe.org slash are we there yet? Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org. Are we there yet? It's a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.